0: It's a difficult thing to live in someone else's shadow, to feel as though you'll never ascend to a better level than them. You're always going to be behind them or considered less than them. Now, maybe you had an older sibling that was, that was good at everything, and you felt like you could never reach their level. Maybe they were good at sports, and, or maybe the teachers would tell you what a great, fun student your brother was or your sister was and you had to hear about it all the time in class. Perhaps coaches and teachers called you by their name and struggled to even remember your name. You felt like you were constantly trying to live up to a legacy that you didn't even ask for. Well, I think about this idea of not living in the shadow of someone else anytime I happen upon a Toronto Blue Jays baseball game. Now, if you followed Major League Baseball, you're likely aware that the talent scouts for the lone Canadian team up there north of the border, but now they're playing in Buffalo, so I guess we can maybe leave that out, but their talent scouts have been going an easy route. They've recently decided that they'll just find some sons of former major leaguers and sign them to contracts. Now, I'm exaggerating there. I'm sure they did scout them, but that's what they did. They signed the sons of some significant past major league talent And they currently have three players on their big league roster who are the sons of former major leaguers. And two of them are enshrined in Cooperstown in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and the other one is the son of a career 299 hitter. You have to feel for those kids. Everything they will do is going to be measured against their fathers. Their careers will always be talked about alongside the fact that they were the sons of these Hall of Fame, or very excellent major league players. They will never be able to let down who their fathers are. Now, I'm sure they dealt with that a long time ago, but it's still a fact. The likelihood of them surpassing their father's legacy is very, very small. Well, as we continue through the book of Genesis and the story of Isaac this morning, we are reminded that Isaac's father was in the big leagues too. Now, he wasn't playing baseball, but his legacy and his reputation was unbelievable. Not only is he in the Faith Hall of Fame chapter in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, but his renown was unbelievable even in his own day. He was Abraham, he was the king of a nomadic kingdom of servants who had been blessed by God and received great wealth. And even though Isaac was the promised child, he never was seen to be greater than his father in the eyes of the world. And even in scripture, Isaac doesn't get much play. In our passage for today, we're going to see, though, that Isaac is legitimate. Even though his father is Abraham and he's always going to live in that shadow, we're going to see that Isaac is blessed by God. He will continue the legacy. Isaac is the child of the promise, and we learn that he too has faith and that God will be faithful to his covenant people. And so as we land in this passage today, we're going to do what we always do. We're going to break it down into three main points. And so the first thing I want us to see is that Isaac repeats the sin of his father. We have seen some instances where Isaac has been more faithful than Abraham, We saw that Isaac doesn't seek to fulfill the covenant promise by having children outside of his marriage. And he stays in a land where God tells him to stay, unlike what Abraham did. But we find here today that Isaac is not perfect. Even though he was a child of the promise, he is not the child of the promise. He is not the coming Messiah who will crush the head of the serpent and will live a perfect life on our behalf. That's not who he is. We're still looking for someone greater to come. But we find that Isaac is still blessed by God, our second point today. Even though he does not trust God in this situation to protect him, we find that the blessing of God on his life is not dependent on Isaac. It is about the faithfulness of God and not the faithfulness of man. And finally, we're going to see that God's faithfulness to Isaac is a witness to the world Those that are in the region with Isaac can see that the Lord has been faithful to Isaac, and this causes them to have respect for him, and a treaty is formed. And so as we start off this passage, we're going to see a familiar twist in the plot. Now, I'm not familiar with the customs, all the customs of the ancient Near East, but they're there must have been some kind of issue with worrying that kings will take your wife if she's attractive. Because we've seen this to be an issue twice before, both in the life of Abraham. And now it's springing up for us again here in this story about Isaac. And we see that people are asking about Rebecca, And so he pulls out that trick of his father's, she's my sister. Except in the case of Isaac, it isn't even a half-truth. Remember back... When Abraham spread this falsehood, he was at least sort of, kind of, maybe telling the truth. Sarah was his half-sister. But Isaac can't even default to that excuse. He can't say, well, I was kind of telling the truth here. Isaac can't do that. He is just telling a complete falsehood. And so we're invited into his thought process. And it's the same as Abraham's. They might do me in because of my attractive wife. Now, aren't you glad you don't live In that ancient Near East culture men? Wouldn't that be a struggle? And the ladies are thinking, you better be thinking that. That's that's your thought. Aren't you glad, though, that you don't have to worry about these kind of things? What a stressful life that must have been for them to worry about what was going to happen when they moved into a new region. And as we continue to look at the events unfolding here, we're going to see that the details in this story let us know that this is a completely different story than the one of Abraham. As I as I mentioned last week, this recurring tale has critics of Genesis assuming that this didn't really happen. And it's just the same story, told three times, but this time there are substantially different details that clue us in that this isn't the same story. This isn't what happened to Abraham, told in a different way. There are different details here, and I, honestly, I thoroughly enjoy The details that we get in this story—you've seen something like this in your life. Well, first, there's something I have to address in the difference between our ESV text up here and what we read in our NIV. Uh, It said that uh, he was caressing her. That's not what the original language says. Abimelech did not notice the way that Abraham or that Isaac and Rebecca were married because he was caressing her. The the word there in the original language is laughter, and we know it's laughter because it's similar to Isaac's name. Remember that when Isaac was named, his name was Isaac? And so, what's happening here in in the text is Isaac's name is sort of being used as as a play on words here. That Not only are they, we know they're married, but they can tell because they're filled with laughter together. They, you can see that they're husband and wife. And you and I have probably experienced this exact thing that this is talking about here, right? You maybe have two friends you think might maybe be starting to be interested in each other, you know, romantically. And you just know when you see them laughing together and the way they interact with each other. You just know, right? You can tell. And so you tell some of your friends that you think they're a couple, and they go, whatever. You know, they just doubt you. And you can and you can say no. I can just tell that they're interested in each other by the way they're talking with each other, the looks they're exchanging. Well, finally, you do find out that they're a couple, and you can't help but say, "I knew it. I told you so." Well, Abimelech knew it. He did the same thing that I'm talking about here with Isaac and Rebecca. He saw how they interacted with one another. He saw how they laughed, and he brings Isaac in to call him to account. And there's a deep concern here that's interesting from the king of the Philistines. His concern here is pretty substantial. Why is that? It's because in the ancient Near East, adultery was considered to be a serious offense. It wasn't just something for the Hebrews after they received the Ten Commandments. In that culture, adultery was a serious offense. And you can see it here in the way Abimelech responds. He says, what have you you done to us? This is not only considered to be bad because of the deception, but because it could have brought substantial condemnation upon them. There would have been guilt on their heads if one of the men would have lain with her. So Abimelech goes to the extreme to protect not only Isaac and Rebekah, but he's concerned about the guilt of the people. That's why this is such an extreme statement. No one is to touch either Isaac or Rebekah under the threat of death. He's giving the couple... Peace of mind, and he's also protecting his own people from being guilty. And so we've seen that Isaac doesn't fully trust God to protect him. He's repeating the sin of his father. But as we move on to our second point this morning, we find that God is going to do the same thing that he did with Abraham. He's going to bless Isaac in spite of his sin and unbelief. And what we read here, we can understand. Isaac sows. And he reaps a hundredfold. Now, that's a great arrangement. That's fantastic. But it's important to note that this isn't because it was a good growing season and everyone around him was reaping. We're meant to understand that Isaac stands out from the people that he is living among. Now, how would you feel if there were two fields beside each other? One was yours, one was your friend's, had the same soil you bought the same seed from your friendly local seed dealer, and you had the same precipitation and other environmental factors, and then your neighbor was pulling in 75 bushels to the acre more than you. How would that go over? You'd be wondering, "What, what did I do wrong? What's going on here? I'm guessing you wouldn't be too excited about those circumstances. And all of this causes the kingdom of Isaac to increase. And so it's not just that the crops are Uh, Abundantly being reaped But he's being blessed in others in other ways And so the people are envying him and you can understand why he is being blessed extraordinarily Isaac is like that that friend who always happens upon success Even when it doesn't seem like they've done anything to deserve it. it They look at him and go what are we doing wrong and what is he doing right? How is this fair? and so As the story continues, we get some interesting details. The the Philistines had filled in all the wells that Abraham's servants had dug in the past. Now that seems like a weird little detail to have in the story, but this is letting us know that any treaties that would have been in effect between the Philistines and Abraham are no longer being honored. And so this is letting us know that hostility towards Isaac for all of this is an option. The treaties are off. The wells have been filled. Isaac could be in trouble here. As they see the prosperity of Isaac increase, they could be thinking, well, this is easy. We take his stuff, we kill him. Now, before we continue on through the story, it's so important that I, that I draw out a point here that Isaac did not trust God to protect him and Rebekah. Remember, he lied. He took matters into his own hand, even though he knew God's providential hand of protection was upon him. But did God see the lies and the unbelief of Isaac and say, that's it, covenant promise is off, I've had it with this family, this is three times this has happened, I'm done with you people, the covenant promise is now going to come from another family. I'm done with you. Is that what happened? No, that's not how God works. He made the promise and he's going to keep it. Not only will he keep it, but he will supernaturally preserve the people of the promise. He will bless them, despite their best efforts, to mess the whole thing up. And this is an important truth, and it continues to play out as we go through the passage, because Isaac moves to another region to to keep the peace, stays where God told him, but moves away from the Philistines, and he starts to dig more wells, as his father did. Well, What is this telling us? Why are the wells important? Well, you don't dig dig wells if you're going to be moving on quickly. Despite this conflict, Isaac intends to stay in the area where God has told him to reside. And he is also doing what Abraham did. And the idea being expressed here in the text to us is that Abraham was faithful. And so is Isaac. He believes God, is going to give this land to his offspring. But this isn't without conflict because they don't have possession of the land yet. This is not Isaac's land. He can dig wells, but when they find a spring here, we find that there is contention as to who lays claim to the water that comes from it. That's why this part of the story is important. He's in the land, but it's not theirs yet. He's waiting. He's still a sojourner. He believes the promise of God, but God has not delivered the promise yet. He's in the land. He believes it's going to be the possession of his family. But we read here this interesting detail of the story to tell us that he can't lay legal claim to it yet. The land is a promise that will come to pass, but we're not there yet. And we find that Isaac moves on to find water until they can come to a peaceful agreement. And he understands that God is going to be faithful But there's more to come. They will be fruitful. And by God's grace, they will multiply. But they haven't arrived yet. That's this part of the story. It's letting us know that the promise will be fulfilled. But not yet. Not yet. There's conflict in the land. There's conflict. And as one final part of the passage that applies to the point that we're seeing regarding the blessing of God, we find that God reaffirms the covenant here that he's made with Abraham. The Lord appears, and he says the words that we're familiar with. God is going to bless him. He's going to multiply his offspring. And look at what it says here. For my servant Abraham's sake, God is continuing to be faithful to the promise he made to Abraham. Things haven't changed because Abraham has been buried in the cave at Machpelah. The promise is continuing, and we find that Isaac does the same thing that Abraham did. He believes God. He believes God because he builds an altar and he calls upon the name of the Lord. That's what we're meant to feel here. That even though there's tension in the land, even though they're in the land that's promised, it's not theirs yet, but Isaac believes it will be. He believes the promise will come. He hears from God and his response is a natural one. He praises God for his faithfulness that he has shown to him. And we see that Isaac means business here because he's not only built an altar, but he sets his tents up. He stays where God has spoken to him. He desires to be in the presence of the Lord. And notice what he also does he has his servants dig another well. They're not going to scoot on down the road right away, they are steering near where God has spoken. They're staying near they're staying in the place where God has affirmed the covenant promise. Even though we had an issue earlier in the passage, we see that Isaac is trusting God and believing his promise once again. And as we move on to the close of the passage, we find that the blessings of God that we've seen so far are a witness to the world. The people around Isaac are noticing that something is going on. It doesn't make sense that he is more prosperous in the very same region as them with the same conditions and the same basic circumstances. Clearly, there is something supernatural that is occurring, and the people see it. And so Abimelech went to Isaac with the commander of his army and his advisor. Now imagine if someone came up to your door in this way. Now, you would assume it was on, right? You would assume you are in trouble, a king, an advisor, the commanders of the army, you would assume that there is aggression against you, that there are going to be threats. These are not the guys you want to show up at your door when there is a potential for conflict in the region, right? When you're just a sojourner in the land, you don't want these guys showing up. But this isn't what Abimelech is doing. He's not bringing a threat. It isn't that he's had enough of Isaac, so he is going to overpower him and reward himself with all the people and all the possessions of Isaac. That's not what's going on. Instead, even though Abimelech is not a believer, he can clearly see the hand of the Lord upon Isaac. Now, Isaac is confused by the visit. He isn't sure why Abimelech has come, and his response is kind of a, what do you want from me now type of response. You hate me. You've sent me away. What, what else could you possibly do to me, Abimelech? But Abimelech acknowledges that they can see the divine hand upon Isaac. And so they want to be sure that Isaac doesn't take this favored position and overcome them. Isaac should be in the position to be in fear. And instead, the unbelievers are in fear of Isaac. Ultimately, Abimelech is likely in the position of greater power. But because he understands the Lord is by Isaac's side, he understands that Isaac has more power. And he is willing to have a treaty with Isaac. He says, Hey, we may have told you to leave, and we know that you think that we hate you, but we haven't touched you, so so please don't do anything to us, Isaac. And notice what he says on the last verse that is up there. They know that he is now the blessed of the Lord. His father Abraham was known to be blessed, but now it's clear to the people around Isaac that the blessing has been passed on. The covenant is continuing. The blessing is expanding. Now, before we move on to the next section of the passage, there's something really important that I want us to see and understand. Yes, the blessing of God is upon Isaac, and he is prosperous, But this isn't prosperity for prosperity's sake. God isn't building up the kingdom of Isaac so that he can be rich and have the best camels in the garage and so that he can deck out Rebecca with nice gold and diamond uh, earrings and, and necklaces. That's not the point of the prosperity. So often, the prosperity that we find in the heroes of the Old Testament is twisted by prosperity gospel false teachers to say that God wants you to be rich and all you have to do is have more faith. Well, that's a false teaching because that wasn't the point of the prosperity of the heroes of the faith. We have to remember the bigger story here. These people were the line to the Messiah. They were the place where the covenant promise would be fulfilled. The prosperity that God blesses them with is a hand of protection it's putting protection over the covenant line, the line of the Messiah. Isaac, the child of the promise, will not be overcome by the children of the serpent here. His prosperity is protection from the work of Satan to overcome the promise of God. God will not be thwarted, and his promises will come to pass. And here in this passage, we see that the children of the serpent, Abimelech and the, and the Philistines, are acknowledging that the work of the Lord Is happening in the life of Isaac. And they are joining themselves in a peace treaty with Isaac. For now, there is peace because God has prospered Isaac and he's provided protection for the covenant line to the coming Messiah. And as we come closer to the end of the passage, we find something interesting because this is all resolved with a meal. And this is substantial. This is a sign of peace and a sign of an oath being made between Isaac and Abimelech. There will be peace for the two kings that have dined together and they have exchanged oaths. And just as Abimelech and his servants go on their way, Isaac's servants return and they let them know that they have dug the well and they have found water. They have roots. And God has provided them with peace and with water and with prosperity. Isaac's being touched by God's mighty hand. Now, this isn't their final home. They're still sojourners in the land, but there is a hint here that God is continuing to work, and he will bring the offspring of Isaac into the land, and they will be provided for. They shall drink of the blessings of God. And so Isaac names the place Sheba, which sounds like the Hebrew word for oath. And so this location remained as a sign of the peace that God's hand upon Isaac had brought to them. And they're looking forward to an ultimate peace that we be brought in by God through the work of the one who will finally crush the head of the serpent. Now, before we move on to application, we need to address the final two verses here. I'm off here. This is what happens when you work on a bus, just so you know. Things get off. Uh, Verses 20, 26, or chapter 26, verses 30 through 34 through 35 talk about Esau, and we see that all is not well. Even though this good stuff has been happening in the life of Isaac, things aren't great with Esau. We've met the offspring of Isaac and and we know that Jacob is the one on whom the promise will rest, but we get some details about the life of Esau here at the end of this passage and we're reminded that Esau isn't too concerned with the promises of God. Unlike his father, he does not find a wife from the godly line. Instead, he co-mingles with the people of the serpent and takes for himself a bride from the ungodly line. And even though Isaac has been brought to a place of peace in his life, the decision Esau has made causes life to be bitter for Isaac and Rebekah. They are at peace with the Philistines, but there is discord in the covenant family. And then next week, we're going to see the future of Jacob and Esau and what it means for the covenant promise. And so, having finished up this passage, how do we apply these events that happened in the history of redemption to our daily lives, is is we desire to depart from here today and, like Isaac, be a faithful sojourner in the land. The first thing that we want to see is we want to remember that God is at work despite our sins and our failures. Each day, you and I fail to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. And when we do this, it is so easy for us to feel as though God is keeping score. He's marking down every time we fail, and eventually his hand of blessing is going to be pulled from us. And it's vital that as we look at these stories and see that God is faithful to his promise, we remember that Isaac wasn't perfectly faithful, just as you and I aren't. God's promise is not dependent upon us because God did not rescue you from sin death and hell and the devil to keep score on how you're doing and to pull it all away from you. The promise of God is sure. And the, the benefit of this is, is it moves us to love God more. When we see our sin and our failure and God still loves us and saves us by his grace, it builds up our love for God because we see his mercy and his grace on display. And the truth of what is happening in our lives, when God forgives us and continues to bless us that truth drives us to repent for the, from the sin in our lives and to move towards him in holiness as we desire to please this one, this one who day by day, hour by hour, second by second, is faithful to keep his promise of salvation and forgiveness of sin to us. So don't doubt that God is at work in you. Instead, believe that the word that you have heard and that the spirit that is at work in you Will accomplish the very thing that God said He will do. He will keep His promise. God is at work in you despite your sin and failure. And secondly, let the promise of God in your life shine a light to the world. The peace and the hope that salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ gives us is a beacon of hope in a lost and dying world. The joy that we have knowing that God keeps His promise is a signal to the world that is angry and hopeless. It is a light in the darkness. It was clear to the Philistines that the blessings of the Lord were upon Isaac. And when we show hope, when we show joy, it is clear that the prosperity of the Lord is upon us because he is our source of peace. He is the living water that we have in Christ, and he nourishes us in a dry and barren land. And so, may we be a covenant people of God that lets the joy of the Lord flow out of us, that we might have the opportunity to proclaim the saving work of God in our families, in our community, and in the world. For God will use that proclamation to expand his kingdom and bring about his purposes, that his holy name might be glorified forever and ever. Amen.